turn with me to the book of Exodus. Hey, uh, when we first started this study in Exodus, and, and I was, what I like to do is kind of read through the entire book uh, before I ever do anything else. And uh, when, I, when I got to the plagues and whatnot, there were some things about the plagues that it kind of felt really laboring, right? Because you're like, okay, there's ten plagues. Let's get through the plagues. Let's, let's cover all those plagues and move on, and we'll get down to the nitty-gritty, right? We'll get down to the really heavy stuff of the Exodus and so forth. But when you start studying the Scripture and you, and you really want to try to devour the Scripture, consume it, digest it, and then share it with other people... There are things that are in each event that are so significant that I just can't run through those. Initially coming into this study, my plan was to try to cover all the plagues in one Sunday. Believe that or not, right? Uh, but that's just not feasible to do something like that and maintain the integrity of the scripture and not bypass significant things that lie in each uh, verse, uh, each portion, each plague, okay? So last week, you know, we were dealing with the plague of frogs, right? And, uh, and so we're going to be reading this week. Just basically, we're going to cover, uh, I don't know, three or four scriptures. Feel pretty good about that, right? Right? Hey, turn with me to Exodus chapter 8, I believe verse 16. You got that, Clark? Okay, let's read through this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust became gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Father, this is your word. We are just uh, wanting to consume it. We want it to impact us. We read through these, uh, these three or four verses here, Lord. And we think, what is in this for me? And I know, God, you have spoken truths even into the context of these few verses that if we make application in our own lives, there is power for change resting in these words, your words. So, Lord, we bless you and we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the, the inspiration of, of the scripture, the life-changing power of the scripture. So let us now hear it and take it into our hearts and into our minds and allow it to change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, quick review, right? Last week, the plague of frogs. Remember, we talked about frogs last week. We had one frog gigger in the church. Uh, I was going to try to get with him. I didn't have that opportunity. But uh, we got on the frogs, and, uh, and there were some things that kind of developed last week. Uh, the frogs came, uh, they were everywhere, I mean, they were in houses, palaces, bedrooms, uh, kitchens, I mean, everywhere you looked, there was frogs, right? And then we, we touched on the fact that um, the, the, the magicians of Egypt, they were going to demonstrate their power, and so they made even more frogs, 
which made absolutely no sense what you're wanting to do in that time. If you had any influence or any power whatsoever was to try to subside this population explosion of frogs, but instead because they had no ability really to, to flex against the effort of God and all they could do is kind of go along with the tide, right? And you begin to witness Pharaoh's kind of turning away from the strength of his magicians and acknowledging something different about this uh, uh, Jehovah, uh, the God of the Hebrews. And so he ends up conceding to the Hebrews or to Moses and Aaron, and he says, hey, withdraw these frogs and I'll let you guys go and worship. Remember, that's what God had said, let my children go so they can come and worship me. Right? That was the, the request made by Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. So after the frogs, uh, uh, Pharaoh concedes and he says, Hey man, if you'll withdraw these frogs, then I'll let you go. So what ends up happening? Moses and Aaron allow Pharaoh to choose a time and a date which the frogs would be removed. They said, You name the time, that's when we'll pray, that's when God will remove the frogs. Pharaoh responds and he says, how about tomorrow, right? And we talked about one more night with the frogs, right? And so that's, what, what, that's what's going on. So the next day Moses prays to God and God answers Moses, which is a powerful, powerful truth that each, each and every one of us as followers of Jesus, knowing that we have access to God, we can pray God listens and God responds. That's a powerful truth. What happens after the frogs kind of, the frogs die, they were, they were swept up in the heaps, the land stunk, but the moment the pressure was off, the scripture says when relief was found, Pharaoh withdrew his commitment to release the children of Israel, right? The Hebrews. And so what this basically is, is your quintessential jailhouse religion experience. You know what I'm talking about, jailhouse religion? Listen, I remember when my nephew was in prison down in Eddyville, uh, maximum security prison. I remember going down there multiple times. I remember sitting in this, uh, this visitation area with convicted murderers. I mean, they're identified by certain attire that they must wear. And you're sitting at these tables. You couldn't speak to anyone at any other table. And I'm sitting there talking to my nephew. And I remember sharing the gospel with him. I remember tears just trickling down my face. I remember him because he knows me. I remember him looking me straight in the face, fighting back the emotions. I knew God had invaded uh, that, that, that castle on the lake there in Eddyville, and God was dealing with my nephew's heart. I knew this was happening, and yet he resisted. And one of the reasons he resisted, he said, inside prison... There's a shame and a disrespect for people who turn to religion after they've been incarcerated. That they're actually looked down upon by the other prisoners as weak people. As people who, it, it has taken calamity to move them towards God. And, and they look at people as though their experience is fraudulent. And that became a barrier in my nephew's heart. I remember him saying, man... That sounds so good, but man, that just ain't going to fly in here. But what jailhouse religion really is, is that when an individual under the right conditions, under the right types of pressure, where they are confined, restricted, where they hit rock bottom, they turn to God. And the moment all those things are removed from the equation, they revert right back 
to whatever they were doing prior to the incarceration. Hence, jailhouse religion. They get religion while they're in the jailhouse. Are you with me? This is Pharaoh's exact experience. God puts the pressure on. There's a plague that comes forth. He's under the weight of it. His response is conversion. Moment relief comes, deconversion, right? Are you, you tracking with me, Ronnie? You understand where I'm going, guys? That's what happened. And so now we're moving into the third plague. Now, this plague is somewhat different. And you're going to find out why when we get into this scripture. Let's look at this scripture. Let's go. And this is what the scripture says. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. Now, let me, even before we even go to that, let me say something to you guys. Because this is so, so vastly important as we work our way through this. Because there's going to be this level of redundance about these plagues that you can sometimes kind of get, you know, kind of, you know, distracted with. Because it's one after another. But there's something happening here and I need you to get this. There are times when you're reading this scripture and you understand the power and the influence of God, and I alluded to this last week, that sometimes the followers of God may even imply, and you and I probably have done this sometime in our, in our past, in our experience with God, sometimes you'll project this notion or this idea that God isn't doing enough. Have you ever been in that situation where you felt you're, you, know, you were in the middle of a, of, a, of a situation, you cried out to God, and God's response in your mind and in your heart was inadequate? Have you ever been there? A lot of times, our perception of God's inadequate working on our behalf is birthed out of a perspective of where we just can't see the larger picture. The situation that's happening here is that the children of Israel have now resided within the confines of the borders of Egypt for nearly 400 or just over 400 years. They have been under the influence of false gods, false teachings. They have been under the pressures of a society that rejects their God. And what God was doing here wasn't simply getting the children of Israel out of Egypt. What God was doing also was getting Egypt out of the children of God. And so what God is doing in this moment is he is breaking this chain off of the life of his children. And sometimes the chain that we find ourselves in bondage with, it isn't enough to have that chain broken at a given link. Sometimes what God must do in our lives is to take each and every link that is in that chain and destroy that thing. And what God is doing now is establishing in the hearts of his children by the demise of every God that the Egyptians worshiped, he is undermining their efforts and their validity. So when they get to the point after the plague of the firstborn and God says go, they have enough confidence and assurance to go that God has proven himself to be the one true God and they need not fear the gods of Egypt. You understand? Are you with me? This is what's happening in all this. It's a step-by-step -step breaking of link after link. And let me say this to you. God may have broken some links off in your life, 
Don't think he's done if there's links still remaining. You know what I'm talking about? I know I've had links broken, and I'm having links broken still. You are no different than I am. If you're anything like me whatsoever, God is still breaking links in your life as well. And so this is what's really happening. It isn't that God isn't doing enough. There's a process and there's a purpose behind what God is doing. For the, It wasn't enough just to get them out. You see what I'm saying? Because what ends up happening, ultimately, is that when they do leave Egypt, when they do get out of Egypt, there are some in the camp who still have a whole lot of Egypt in them. Remember that, Reuben? And there's a lot of them who are saying once they got out, man, we'd have been better off had we stayed. So you understand the working of God in trying to, to exercise the influences of Egypt off of his people. And you and I are under the influence of a culture and a society that is anti-God. I don't care how you put it, how you shake it, that is anti-God. Let me, let me even take it to another level. It's anti-Jesus. And you know what I mean by saying that, right? There's a lot of things we can say in this culture regarding religion, regarding God, but keep Jesus out of the equation because Jesus, the name of Jesus, kind of draws a line in the sand. And so there's a lot of tolerance for other gods, but not for Jesus. And so I say all that, that to move us in this direction, okay? And so this is what the scripture says. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become like gnats. You know the difference in this plague than the first two plagues? Absolutely zero warning. The other two plagues, the first two plagues, God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to negotiate to some degree, to make a request, to make it known what would happen, what the request was and what the repercussions were. That doesn't happen here. As a matter of fact, in the, the third plague it doesn't happen, in the sixth plague of bulls it doesn't happen, and in the ninth plague of darkness it doesn't happen. God just responds without negotiating, without conference calls, without communicating, he sees their disobedience, and he simply responds. And I know what you and I have a tendency to think when we read things like this. Man, isn't God unfair? Have you ever thought maybe God's unfair? You know, why didn't he give them a chance? Maybe the third time had they negotiated or had they brought this to, to, to Pharaoh, maybe he would have conceded. Well, we know he wouldn't have conceded, right? We know what the scripture says. God had already declared that he wouldn't concede, right? We know this. And so sometimes we project unto God this idea, this adolescent idea of fairness. Now listen, my mother-in-law went to daycare. I've been around a bunch of little kids. I love to use Abigail and Joshua as examples. Now, they're not really nearly as bad as I make them out to be up here. I'm just waiting one day to be sued by this young couple right here for making their kids look so bad. But listen, there's times down there when these little kids, they'll want something. They'll want more of something, and they'll come running in. I've been down there enough times to witness it. They'll come running in, and they'll say, Miss Kathy, Miss Taylor, Miss Ashlyn, little Billy's not being fair. <laughs> right? Right? And then we, we line everything up. We put it on the scales, and we measure the fairness. 
Okay, your cookie was this big, your cookie was that big, let's give you another half a cookie. Right? We want, we want things fair. And sometimes this fairness idea and concept sometimes kind of works its way into our view of God. And we're thinking we want God to be a God who is fair. Right? Well, let me tell you something. Let me tell The last thing you want God to be is fair. You understand what I'm talking about, Jack? Listen, the unfairness of God is the plate by which grace and mercy is served into our lives. You understand that? The last thing, you don't want God being fair. Fair means the pushing out of mercy. Fair means the pushing out of grace. You don't want fair. I don't want fair. Right? And so... This is taking place. This is the, the, the third plague. This is what he says. Tell Aaron to stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. Now the first two plagues were exercised over bodies of water, were they not? Remember the, they turned, he turned the Nile into blood. Remember the second one? He stretched out the rod over the ponds, over different sources of water, and it produced what? A plague of frogs, right? But this one is somewhat different. What did he, he didn't tell him to stretch out his, his rod over anything. What did he tell him? He says, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. You're almost getting a response from God that looks as though he's having to temper his patience. And so this one Involves not just stretching, but a striking of the ground. A striking of the ground. And there's something that's taking place in this that I want you to understand. Each of the gods of Egypt operated within a given compartment or area of the culture. There was a God who did this, and a God who done that, and a God who did this, and a God who done that. So God has already exercised his power over the influence of waters and, and streams and, and canals and all. Now he's exercising his power and his influence over the ground, right? And what is being implied here, and this is just the third plague, is that our God isn't a God who can be isolated or it can be, as, as the old movie used to say, no one puts baby in the, baby in the corner. Remember that? Remember that? What was the name of the movie? Shame on you. Shame on you. No one puts baby in the corner. Let me say this. You don't put God in the corner thinking as though God can only operate in certain facets. God demonstrates that not only is he in control over the bodies of water, including the Nile, he's in control of the ground as well. He is the God over all things. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. You have it, Clark? Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. He is distinguishing himself from the Egyptian deities as not a God who is compartmentalized to do one thing. He is a God over everything. Are you with me? 
We need to understand this. God isn't limited. Let's, let's move on. And then this is what the scripture says. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will, be, will become gnats. Now the word in Hebrew for gnats is the word cane. And it can be translated, and many of your translations will render it, not gnats, but will render it as lice. And every mother who has children in school says, ooh, because every one of us have gotten that dreaded call or that dreaded note that little Jimmy brings in at the end of a school day. Jimmy runs in the house like this. Mom, I got a note for you. Moms with that motherly instinct, they know that's the lice letter. And they open it up. And sure enough, would you please check your children's hair? We have had a lice outbreak. Now every person in this sanctuary, not just Amanda, is starting to scratch their head. Right? You feel that tingling on your scalp? You know what I'm talking about? And so this is what the scripture is saying that all the dust of the earth becomes gnats or lice, right? I remember, I remember my first trip to Honduras, and we had gone up into a mountainous little village where there was an a educational, there was a little school of ministry, and it was in uh, 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 Cachias, Cachias. And uh, we, we went up there, and, and I remember uh, I took a few supplies with me, as we were told to take, and... Uh, I remember our sleeping quarters. Our sleeping quarters were basically a, a, a block building. It had a, a, a basically screen mesh over the doors, over the windows and whatnot. I remember going out to take a shower, and it was basically a, a concrete block a shower uh, 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 stall. And I remember going out there taking showers with salamanders, lizards, spiders. Everything was in that shower. Listen, those are the cleanest bugs in Honduras. Right? But everything, and I remember, I remember the first night that we stayed there, there was a gentleman who had gone with us on this trip, and his name was Chris Lambert. All right? Didn't have any sense whatsoever. No sense. Right? He, that joker couldn't give you change for a nickel. He has so little sense. Right? And listen, and we went down there, and uh, he was on the bottom bunk, and I was on the top bunk. And I remember, I remember going to bed that night, and I, I, I took... Uh, what most people would refer to as a deep bath. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Deep? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I had deep all over me. Spray, I, had, I mean, I was covered with this stuff because I seen the things that were creeping through that house. And I remember I got up on that top bunk. I sprayed around that bunk. I sprayed above it. It was like praying. I mean, I, I was covered. I mean, it was like a dome of deep. I mean, an atmosphere. I had created... This, this safe house. And I sprayed it everywhere. And I remember uh, Chris was down below me, out of the reach of the deep. And I remember the next morning I woke up. I didn't sleep well that night. How many people sleep well when you go to a foreign country for the first time and you're sleeping out in the middle of a jungle, basically? I didn't sleep well. I woke up when the sun rose. Chris Lambert woke up a little while later. I jumped out of bed. He uncovered his blanket. And his body was eaten up. I mean eaten up. There probably wasn't two inches of his body 
where there wasn't a bite, a mark. And listen, I say two inches. I didn't inspect everything, okay? I wasn't giving that man the up and down. I mean, his legs were devoured, welted, swollen. I mean, arms, I mean, had been chewed up. And what we're talking about right here in this scripture, when it says what it's about to say, I want you to envision, to envision what is taking place here. Let's look at this. And they did this, as the Lord said, right? They did. The value of obedience to God can never be overstated. I'll park there, I'll make that statement, and we'll move on. They did this. You need to be doing this when God says, okay, let's move on. And when Aaron stretched out his hand and the with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Do you get that? Did y'all hear that? But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. We're going to park here just for a second. We're going to make a statement. We're going to move forward. It says, when the magicians tried to produce gnats, listen, when God is acting on your behalf, trying to break chains and links in your life, trying to do things for you, Kevin, don't think there's not going to be opposition trying to produce things that hinder that. You know what I'm talking about, man? Every time God puts somebody in your life to help influence you into the kingdom, into a deeper walk, don't be shocked that the enemy doesn't bring two people into your life to try to deter you from that very thing. God will give you one great co-worker that builds you up, and he'll give you ten jackasses to try to tear you down. You know what I'm talking about? Don't think, don't think that that will not happen. God will bring you that great worker at your beauty shop, and then he'll bring you three, three that drive you crazy. And you're like, oh. And so here we are, and the magicians are trying to do the exact same thing. It says, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats with their secret arts, they could not. You know why? This was a creative act of life. God literally turned dust into life. Only God has creative power to generate life out of nothing. Go back into Genesis, and it is demonstrated time and time again the life-creating ability of God to produce something beautiful out of nothing. That's God, and he does it right here. He produces this plague of gnats out of the dirt, out of the dust. Hmm. He's dealing here with the Egyptian god Set. That is his name. I don't... I don't know how many of you guys have been watching Moon Knight. Anybody watching Moon Knight? Anybody raise your hand. Moon Knight? Okay. All right, got, we got seven, eight people. Okay, you hear them mention certain Egyptian gods and whatnot. You may end up hearing this name mentioned before it's over. He's the god of the deserts. He's also the god of, of storms, natural disasters, and chaos. And so what God is doing right here is they may have done whatever ritual they may have needed to do to appease that God set. But when God chooses, Jehovah God chooses to act on behalf of his people, there's a reckoning coming. And you can't appease him. You can't appease God in carnal responses. 
You can't appease God in disobedience. You can't appease God by just trying to look a certain way, trying to work out a certain process. And so the God set is exposed in this moment, and God is demonstrating his power and his influence over the properties that that God should have been operating in under their theology. And we'll move. And then it says this. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They used the term Elohim, which means God Almighty. Hey, Pharaoh, I know we got a bunch of gods, but this looks like it's the finger of God Almighty. Chief God, big God, top God, top God. maybe even the God. Elohim, that's what we hear the Hebrews call him. They call him mighty God. This is the finger of God. Now listen, you remember back when we were doing Genesis? You remember when I told you, I said every time we run across something that happens for the very first time, I'm going to kind of identify that for you? Well, guess what? We're going to transition that principle even into the book of Exodus. Because listen, 2,500 years of history has been documented at this moment in the scripture up to this point. This is the very first time that the word finger, finger, period, is used in the Bible. Now, it's metaphorical, speaking of the finger of God. And to us, the idea of finger is that it accomplishes things. Remember, a finger kind of points out things, doesn't it? And in this situation, it indicates the source of power. They refer to it as the finger of God. Right? Exodus chapter 31, verse 18 says this. It says this. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. And he gave it to Moses. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That's the second time the term is used. Psalms 8.3 says this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... The heavens, all of that created by the fingers of God. The fingers of God. Charlie Garrett, pastor at Superior Word Ministry, says this. says, the finger leads to the hand and the hand to the arm, which is used to indicate strength. Strength to destroy and strength to save. It implies power to both fend off and to hold. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? To think about the, the finger of God reaching into the hand of God and to the arm of God, right? And this is what the scripture says in Psalms 118, verse 16. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. Oh, to think that the strong arm of God, which, is, which they use the finger to identify as an extension of that strong arm, to think of the arm of God as one that works on our behalf to fend off and to hold. Some of you have had that, right? Where God has fended off efforts against you. And then some of you in a broken state just needed to be held by God. And you've experienced that, haven't you? Where God just, that same arm that has crippled nations, that same arm that has paralyzed cultures, you have felt the sweet embrace where he just pulls you in. That's powerful. 
this is what they say. Said, so this is the finger of God. They acknowledge God, but they didn't honor or serve God, right? They acknowledge, hey, this is the finger of Adonai. This is the finger of God Almighty, the mighty God, the Hebrews God. This is the finger, but that wasn't their God. And so that kind of brings it home to you and me today. Oh, I acknowledge God, I believe God. I believe in God, but I'm not really down with honoring or serving God with my life. I may come to church, I may be a part of church, I may even sing a song, I might give a dollar. But I'm not really down with honoring God or serving God. I'm kind of like the magicians. I recognize it, I acknowledge it, but I'm not really following it. James? The brother of Jesus addresses this in chapter 2 of the book of James. You know this, right? And this is what James says about those who claim to believe, those who claim to acknowledge, but they don't really honor or serve. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? That's a tough spot to start, ain't it? What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is, is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. You know what James is saying? To acknowledge God or to even believe in God without it actually playing out, manifesting itself in a life in obedience, in a life of honoring and serving, is absolutely worthless. Now where does James get his authority to speak on such heavy matters of theology? He's the brother of the Savior. kind of a transcendent or a transferred authority. He goes on to say in verse 19, this is heavy, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know what he's saying? You know what he's basically saying right there, man, we can make application. We're not stretching the scripture. There's a legitimate application. He said, hey, the demons believe. They acknowledge the magicians believe, they acknowledge, and they shudder. You think the magicians wasn't shuddering? You better believe they were shuddering. You think they didn't believe? They believed. Do you think they were honoring and serving? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mm. And this is what the scripture then says. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Now, you remember who these cats were that were doing all this talking? These were the magicians, the wise men. These were the council of Pharaoh. But now they come back and they're telling Pharaoh something that Pharaoh didn't really want to hear. So what does Pharaoh decide to do in that moment? I ain't listening to you. I'm not listening to you. If you're not going to tell me what I want to hear, Trent, if you're not going to preach some... some 
Bible lesson that's going to make me feel good about where I'm at in this world, if you're not going to preach something, man, that's going to build up my finances, if you're not going to preach something that ain't going to make me feel good and make me sleep better at night, then I'm just not going to come. Because that's not what I want to hear. I'm just not going to listen to that stuff. And that's kind of what Pharaoh's doing right here. He even looks at those that he had deemed to be wise counsel. And he says, you ain't speaking what I need to hear. So I'm just shutting you out. Shutting you out. And we're closing with this. Pharaoh, listen, in light of God's power, chose to trust in his own limited power and his influence and his influence which at that very moment was being exposed as completely and utterly inadequate. I'm going to tell you one of the more humorous things I witness in my life sometimes, Roddy. I'll tell you, this pretty, listen, it's funny and sad at the same time. It travels both roads. When I see people who are trying to flex their own power and their own influence to direct and guide their own life to no avail, and you sit back and, and you say to them, I just told me and Janine was talking about this. When people make decisions to do certain things and they think it's going to work out because they're going to make it work out, you sit back and you're like, okay, okay. And all it's doing is exposing their inadequacy, their own power, the lack thereof. We have an opportunity, you and I have an opportunity to either trust in our own power and our own strength and our own influence or to trust in God's power and His own and His influence, His wisdom. Hey, Wednesday night, Wednesday night before um, Easter, before uh, Monday, Thursday, uh, in our little area over in Buffalo, over at, uh, around Mount Tabor, two tornadoes touched down within probably a mile and a half of our house and the house of Jeff and, and Jess, right? Remember? And many of us lost power, didn't we? We lost power. Well, we were at my mother-in-law's house when we lost power. Well, <clears throat> being the good son-in-law I am, Larry, might I add, I had installed a backup generator system for her house. So when all the power went out, I went downstairs, I threw the breakers, the interlock switch, I changed all that, and I pushed button, we started the, the generator up, and we have about 80% capacity. The lights came on, I was down in the basement, I could hear all the girls upstairs and Clark giggling. <laughs> we got light. You know what I'm talking about? The TV's on. The router's working. And you can almost hear Clark say, hallelujah. Right, 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 and there's power on it. And so we're getting everything ready for the next morning. We had to make sure there was power for the daycare and whatnot. And so uh, because it has about 80% uh, uh, capacity or, or it has the capacity to power about 80% of the house and whatnot, I had to pick and choose exactly what we needed to, uh, to power. For example, we're not cooking through the night, so we're not going to power that electric uh, stove. Uh, no one's taking a bath through the middle of the night. We're going to turn off that hot water heater and we're just going to shock people when they get up the next morning to take a shower. Right? And just giggle when we hear them squalling when the cold water hits them. Right? So I got a few things. And so slowly, everyone became somewhat comfortable 
with this uh, supplementary power. And so as everybody began to doze off, I decided, being the Indiana Jones that I am, that I'm going to go out in an adventurous spirit, and I'm going to see the length and the depth of the destruction and why I don't have power at my house. So I got out in the car. It was probably about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I began to drive down the road. And it didn't take me very long, Marissa, before I recognized a transformer laying in the ditch and a power line about 6, 7, maybe 8 feet over the road. And I saw trees toppled, lines snapped. Dangerous, dangerous environment. So I went back home and I knew it was going to be an extensive amount uh, or at least uh, uh, several more hours. This is going to be an extensive repair. And we had just purchased about 1,200 pounds of beef. And I had it in my house in the freezers that was no longer being powered. So I don't sleep well, understanding that my beef is about to spoil. Right, right? You understand me? And so I'm, everybody else sleeping good. Kathy's freezers are free, are working good. Right? I'm about to run a big extension all the way up to my house and power my house. Right? And, and so I'm, I'm sitting there and sitting up, I'm, I'm dozing off. And three o'clock becomes four o'clock, four o'clock, 4.30. Kathy wakes up to start getting the daycare ready. Everybody else is still asleep. About 5 o'clock rolls around. We're waiting. And I don't know, somewhere maybe between 5 and 6 o'clock, we get a text message. The power's back on. The power grid has been reestablished. I look down the road. I can see my, my garage light on. I said, we got power. Food is saved. Praise be to the name of God. Right, right. I, hey, don't think I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking that. And so I knew that the primary power was now available. So what I had to do was I had to go downstairs. I opened up the service panel, Dwayne, and there's an interlocking switch there. An interlocking switch is there so that the backup supply power can be on at the same time that the service power is on so the generator won't backfeed current into a down line, line and kill a service worker. Because they're assuming power is being fed from the supplier, not power being backfed from a recipient of the power. So you have to have, by law, an interlocking switch, which will not allow both circuits to be open at the same time. So, Tim, you know what I did? I went down there. I went down there, and I was looking at that, and I had a choice to make. I can either keep running on 80% capacity, or I could take that interlocking switch and I could move it in a more favorable position and I could have full capacity. But you know what had to happen before I could move that interlocking switch? Because the way it's made, I had to shut off the power from the generator, the, the, the secondary supply, the limited supply. I had to shut it off. And when I shut it off and I moved that interlocking switch in position, it allowed me then to trip the main breaker. And when I tripped the main breaker after shutting off my power, when I tripped the main breaker, you could almost hear the humming of that electricity coming through that house. Man, we had full go power. I mean everything. I went through that house and the breakers that had been turned on or turned off so it wouldn't weigh down the generator. I just started going back with a grin on my face. I was hitting every breaker. Pow! Pow! 
I could hear the hot water here kick out. Pow! Pow! And I was just, you know why? You know why? I had unlimited power then. I had unlimited power. But I had to concede my limited power to get it. I don't know if you're tracking with me or not this morning, but let me say this if you're not. You can be like Pharaoh. Live out your life under the influence of your own power, your own abilities, or you can humble yourself, turn off your own power, and access the power that God provides and supplies. But that is 100% up to you. I could never turn the main power on without adjusting the supply and the interlock. The interlock is a metaphor I used this morning for your free will. It is your choice. Your choice. Your choice. To live limited power or unlimited power. Mm. Amen. That's just four verses. That's four verses, Reuben. You understand why we can't drop in another 10, 15, right? You understand that, brother? But that's where we're at this morning. That's where you're at this morning. What we're going to do, I'm going to ask Danny, I'm going to ask Ben to come. And we're going to have communion this morning. That's something we want to do this morning. We're going to come and we're going to take the elements. And what I'm praying for you this morning as we're approaching this most sacred of experiences within Christendom. I want you to consider the decisions of your life. I want you to consider and be honest. Who's power in my life? Because the reality is, it don't take a whole lot of power to get in your car and drive over here and to look religious. It don't take a lot of power. A lot of people go to church and have no power. Like God's power. I mean, churches are full of people that aren't living in the power of God. Why do you think the churches are so weak and powerless? Because it's limited. And so as we come this morning, each person consider, contemplate, ask yourself, who's power in my life? Or am I one of those jokers that kind of like it on and off? I need a little power, I tap in and I turn it back off. I'm in a dire situation, let me get some power. And then once I'm in the clear uh, jailhouse, really, I'll, I'll just turn that power back off. I just draw off the power of God when I need it because you like the understanding that you always need it. You realize that, right? Some of us work like that. We end up with spiritual carpal tunnel, switching that breaker back and forth so much. Pow, 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 pow. You need to make a decision. You need to make a decision. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to start on the front over here with my two young candidates. And they're going to lead us this morning. What they're going to do on the outside, you guys are going to file to the back, come down the center. Once we work our way all the way back on the sides, we're going to start in the front, and we're going to work our way around. Everyone with me. All right? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to ask you guys to come. 
consider and decide for yourself today whose power is power in your life this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the way it changes us. It speaks to us. Father, that each Sunday we would leave here having placed our own heart and our own mind on the scales, asking you to measure us, find where we're wanting, address that link, and break that thing. Continue breaking the links in our life until we are completely and utterly free. Father, as we come to take the elements this morning, may we ponder and consider the scale of this very act and what it means and what it meant to you and what it meant to those early believers when they took that bread and they took that wine and they consumed it. What was on the line, man, when they were doing that? Oh, God, may, that, may it be that heavy in our hearts and our minds today. We ask this, we pray for your blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen.